Turn if in your Bible or on your uh, device, book of Acts, chapter 16. And uh, I'm not one for sermon titles, uh, but if I was to title this one, I would call it A Jailer Set Free. There might be some irony in that title, and I hope you catch it. Acts 16 is a, a real turning point in the book of Acts, because here, oh, thanks. There. Acts 16 is a real turning point. My mouse has to work, sorry. It's a turning point because for the first time the gospel is going to go to a new continent, continent of Europe. And uh, so that in itself is uh, pretty significant about it. Also, for the first time, we hear Luke's voice in the first person. You realize Luke is now traveling with the company. So that's interesting too. And you see in this chapter that uh, Luke is kind of in a rush in his narrative. Um, Oops, let me get this going. There. Luke's in a rush in his narrative. Starting in Acts 15, 42 verses before this chapter, Paul starts his second missionary journey. He had a little dispute with uh, Barnabas over whether John Mark was worthy of going on such a journey with them, would he be faithful, would he be reliable? Because he had turned back before in the first missionary journey. So Paul had a point, Barnabas may have had a point anyway. They got pretty distressed and they figured we'll just go both, both go our separate ways. So Paul picks Silas to go with him. <clears throat> and in, the, in this second missionary journey, he says, I'm gonna go back and visit all the churches from the first missionary journey. Let's see how everybody's doing. So in the first verses of chapter 16, you have Paul doing that, and there's all these names of cities that are hard to pronounce and certainly almost impossible to relate to unless you're looking directly at a map. Paul picks up Timothy along the way. In Acts 16, beginning of verse 6, and they pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were trying to go to Bithynia, And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them, and passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. So Luke very quickly brings us from Antioch in Syria, that would be Lebanon today, brings us from there, and Paul's travels very quickly brings us all the way up to the very coast, the very edge of the Aegean Sea, in a big city named Troas, an important city. And so here we start sort of looking at a few things in our passage. We'll be looking at the Philippian jailer, but there's some background to that whole story, and so we'll want to sort of quickly get past that just so we're, we're familiar with that background. But right now, why don't we ask the Lord to be with us again and pray that he would just bless his word. So Heavenly Father, we come to your holy scriptures, and, and uh, Lord, these are words of life. Um, we sing that song 
speak them over again to me, sing them over again to me, the wonderful words of life. Because that's what they are. And Lord, throughout our Christian walk, you have brought your word into our life to, uh, first of all, just bring us the knowledge of yourself with clarity. Uh, Lord, we can look at your creation, but to discern your ultimate glory, your being, your character, your love, your heart. Uh, Lord, you have put that in your word. And uh, Lord, you have preserved that word in all generations. And you ultimately sent that word in the person of your son. And he is the eternal word. Lord, this morning, as we look at this Philippian jailer, what a testimony this man has. How many times he must have told this story over and over and over again to people of how you personally came down and shook the very mountain he was on to save him from his sin. Lord, what an amazing thing. And just pray, Lord, this morning that you would just capture our hearts. This is a, this is a story, a story that's gripping and Lord, that this very story itself would capture our minds, and, but the theme, the, the content, what's actually happening, Lord, that'll grip our souls. And Lord, you would just bring the knowledge of yourself to all of us here. Only your Holy Spirit can do that, and just ask that you would give him in great measure. And Lord, like this Philippian jailer, that uh, we would all walk out of here today either with joy or with a deep conviction from your Holy Spirit. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Luke lists off a lot of places here, places we're very unfamiliar with, but here's kind of a map. Um, you look at it and just imagine this is the United States and you would have Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Kentucky, etc. Well, that's how they named regions you know, back in, in that time. They had administrative regions, regions of jurisdiction for different things. And at the time, the first century, this is about 50, 60 AD, this is pretty much what it looked like. All the terms are a little unfamiliar, uh, but you know, they're just kind of states, if you will, in Greece and in Asia Minor. <clears throat> now, if we were to follow and trace the route of Paul as he's going from Syria, uh, you see that he would sort of come up through the middle of Turkey, and there's two X's there, and those are two X's where God said, don't go there. Now, that's kind of strange, isn't it? You think, you know, a missionary, man, they, they want to go preach the gospel. Well, go, you know, they're on fire, go preach the gospel. And, and God says, no, you're not going to go to Asia right now, which would be sort of the Lydia area there. And you're not going to go to Bithynia because I got some place for you to go. And so God, step by step, he doesn't usually guide us all the way. He says, you got to live day by day. And sometimes you just got to get your guidance step by step and trust God. And so <clears throat> the Holy Spirit brings him to Troas, the city, on the edge of the Aegean Sea. And when he's there, um, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. <clears throat> a man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Come and help us. And when he had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so God very clearly uh, shows this missionary band through this vision that's given to Paul that you need to cross the Aegean Sea and you need to go into uh, <clears throat> Europe, into the Macedonian province. But notice some of the things they concluded. They concluded that they were to go to Macedonia, but the other thing they concluded was that they were to preach the gospel. And you say, well, Steve, isn't that kind of obvious? Obviously, they're missionaries. 
Well, unfortunately, we live in a day, and this day, this isn't the first time in history that uh, this has happened. There's folks who will say, well, if I'm going to go help the people in Macedonia, I need to go and give them food, and I need to give them water and drill you know, wells for them because they don't know about sanitation, and I need to give all this help and bring all these social benefits to them. And that's well and good, except that's not at all what the Apostle Paul or Silas or Luke or all the others with them concluded. When they were asked for help, when someone appears in a vision, if, someone, if this vision happened to you, what would you be thinking? Gosh, you know, this is big time. God has talked to me with a vision. Well, they concluded that what they need was the gospel. More than anything else, above everything else, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And my brothers and sisters, if the church descends into just being a social organization of doing good works, then it has totally and completely missed its calling from God. You want to help somebody? Give them the gospel. Now, if your heart is hard and you're going to go, well, I, this person needs some food, I got some, but, you know, good luck to them, but I'll just tell them about Jesus. Well, that's, you know, addressed in 1 John. But that's not the measure of the church's mission. That's the measure of a person's heart. The measure of the church's mission is here. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so we, as a body of believers, can never descend into just promoting social justice. We are to bring the gospel. This is our Christian mission. And this is what will help every human being who hears it and responds. Well, again, sort of uh, Luke continues with the details of his journey. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran straight, of course, to Samothrace, and the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, ah, the destination, which is a leading city of the district. So here is Philippi. Uh, it, it was about 10 miles from the ocean, so if you were in Philippi and you wanted to go to the beach, you had to drive down to Neapolis, uh, or ride your ox down to Neapolis, or whatever your mode of transportation was, and that's how you went to the beach. But this city, this city of Philippi, is a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And I'm only going through this because this sort of has some implications for the Philippian jailer. I spent a lot of time going, how do I get here without confusing everybody about all this geography that confuses me too? So <clears throat> this is what we're getting to. This is a leading city. This is a significant city, not so much that it's a big city, but it's a colony, a Roman colony. You see, in, in the Roman structure of the world in that day, Cities had legitimacy based on how close were they or how much were they part of actual Rome itself. And so a colony was a place where Rome had been sending veterans, foreign, uh, war veterans, army veterans, and they would go and populate a place. And then it would, if you had enough people there, it would gain the status of a Roman colony. That was like the top of the list. Now, if it was just people sort of who were kind of near Romans or friends of Romans or dealt with Romans and they went and established a city, well, it was called a municipi, or municipi. and if it was just, just a city all on its own in the Roman Empire, it was kind of third string, literally, and they called it a civitas. Remember, these folks spoke Latin, not Greek. And so here is where our story is going to transpire. It's in the district of Macedonia, and it's a Roman colony. When you read the letter of Paul to the Philippians, he actually has some terminology in there 
that very much reflects the Roman concept that we're citizens of Rome. We are not residents of Rome, we are citizens of Rome wherever we are. And wherever we are, we represent Rome and we bring Rome with us. Hence you'll read in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. Now that just kind of rolls off our tongue, we understand what it means, pretty much. But it only occurs in Philippians. It only occurs in a letter written to people who were all about being a citizen. And Paul says, well, remember where your real citizenship is, not in Rome. It's in heaven. So here's just a couple of pictures to show you that this is just part of the old Roman ruins, that if you went to Philippi and could go there and not get kidnapped and ransomed, um, you could go and see uh, the leftovers of the Roman rule and the Roman Empire in that city. There is an amphitheater, always sort of brings to mind Rome when you see something of that structure. And so Paul has arrived at this city. We're going to bypass Lydia. We talked with her in our last, talked about her in our last baptism. But we really have to start with a slave girl. In verses 16 through 18, there is this narrative about this young girl. She was a slave, and she was possessed by a demon. And uh, so as one possessed by a demon, she had certain abilities. And always remember this, if Satan says the sky is blue, you better go outside and check. Satan will represent himself as being far more powerful than he is, or he'll hide himself. He's a master at disguise. And so we don't know what kind of divinations were being given, but apparently everybody in the city knew that if they came to these two men, or several men, who had this slave girl, they were her master, that they could go to her and ask questions. And usually, by the way, if you look into that period of time, the questions were, how do I get Ralph to be my boyfriend? Or how can I make, you know, Sally be my girlfriend? That's really what they went for. And they would get some little incantation from the soothsayer, or this or that. But this, this girl had the ability to say things that would make it look like that, 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 that this demon knew what the future was. And she was very profitable. A lot of people will pay for this information. Pay for a boyfriend, pay for a girlfriend, get, get what their heart desires. And so this was, this was big money to her slave owners. But she was following after Paul and us. There's Luke again. She kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Wait a minute. Here's a demon saying that these guys are the real deal. Like, kind of like getting some free advertising maybe, right? After all, didn't Paul say, I don't care how Christ is preached? Whether in pretense or in truth, at least Christ is preached. Well, she continued doing this for many days, but Paul was greatly annoyed. Can you just see Paul just frustrated? He's there trying to do the work of the gospel, and every time he turns around, here's this woman on her saying these things, on them saying these things, following them saying these things, and he's just like, will this lady ever quit? So finally, he knows what's going on, and he's greatly annoyed, and he turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her at that very moment. Why would Paul want to shut down someone saying, hey, these are the men from the Most High God? Well, let me ask you this. Say you owned a clothes store, and someone came up to your clothes store and said, you know, I need a job, I'll advertise for you, and they're totally disheveled, dirt all over them, spilled ketchup on themselves. 
are very loud and boisterous and annoying, as Paul describes here, do you want them to advertise for your clothes store? Go out there with a, a sign, come to this clothes store. Is that, is that what you would want? Are they good advertisement for you or are they bad advertisement for you? And you see, that's what was happening here. Here is a woman who is known to do what? Represent the powers of darkness. Now trying to advertise for Jesus Christ. Not really a good billboard to have. And so Paul, finally, he just says, enough is enough, and commands the spirit out. Well, little did Paul know that he just brought the whole was about to bring the whole city into a riot. And so Acts 16, 19 is where we really begin with our story. And we read that, but when her masters, the masters of this slave girl, when her masters saw that the hope of their prophet was gone, money talking here, the love of money, they were abusing this young girl, someone who was just in total bondage, and they were just abusing her for their own gain. The hope of their prophet was gone. And so how do they respond? They seized Paul and Silas. They dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. These guys were more than disappointed. They were mad. They were upset. They were determined to vent their anger. And they were going to make a public spectacle of Paul and Silas after all their foreigners. What do we care? They don't have any skin in this city. And so they grabbed them, they seized them, they dragged them into the main marketplace of the city. It's kind of the town square, it's the mall and the town square, all joined together. And they say, man, this is so bad what they've done to us, we're going to take legal action, we're going to bring it to the authorities. We're going to take this to the courts. This is really a bad thing. They dragged them to the marketplace. And when they had brought them before to the, to the chief magistrates, and in a Roman colony you would have two magistrates, they were at the top of the heap. When they brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these, these men who were making merchandise of this poor young woman's life, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion. And they're Jews. And they're proclaiming customs, which it's not lawful for us to accept or to observe because we're Romans. We're a Roman colony. We represent Rome. We can't take on these customs. And so what do we have here? We have a clear example of the first century cancel culture. Cancel culture is nothing new to the human race. They just have new tools called the Internet. Cancel culture has always been in operation, always been around. And so the methods and the mechanisms of the cancel culture at Philippi were generally the same, unsubstantiated accusation. Just accuse, put a question mark over these men, a big one, a dark one. One that when someone hears it, they'll go, well, they must be guilty or you wouldn't be saying that. Accusation. Then there's all this spin and exaggeration. They're throwing our city into confusion. Is that what you saw? Is that what Luke recorded? 
Was that what was happening? It was only happening to these guys. The only confusion was the confusion of their bank account. But they're going to take it out and they're going to make the whole city cancel Paul and Silas because they have a vendetta. Loaded terminology, spin and exaggeration, nothing but emotional appeal, no facts, no reality, just bending the truth or non-truth into a direction designed to inflame. And then they bring in what? Identity politics, right? These people are Jews and we're Romans. They're trying to appropriate our culture. This is wrong. Let's flame that up. Let's get everybody all upset about that. They've got these awful customs. Well, what awful customs? They went and prayed. And then they want to bring the law on their side. They want to bend government and law to start to be in support of their opinions and their perspectives and their identity politics. It's not lawful. We're Romans. So folks, when you look out there and you see this this wretched cancel culture that has gripped our nation, particularly at the high levels of government, nothing new under the sun. They just have better tools to do it with. So if you become a victim of the cancel culture as a Christian and everything is bent against you, everything is exaggerated, everything is spun, Identity politics is thrown at you to try to checkmate you. Don't be surprised. Go read Acts chapter 16 and say, Lord, give me the wisdom for today's version of the cancel culture. By the way, if you haven't been canceled, you will be. If you're not following things, you you might want to poke your head up a little bit and start looking around. Christianity is the ultimate target of everything happening in America today. What did the crowd do? I mean, gosh, these guys are the instigators, but what does the crowd do? The crowd rose up together against them. The crowd piles on in unison. Yeah, this really feels emotionally good and emotionally right. Therefore, we're going to jump on these guys and we're going to hassle them because of, well, we really don't know, but it just feels good. We really can't define it because it's really nebulous. It's really up here, sort of just really misty. But they've got to be bad. The politicians pile on in collaboration. You see, don't let a good crisis go to waste wasn't invented in America. Politicians have always been adept at this. So they pile on. And the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them. Well, now they've said, we're going to yank the outward clothing of these representatives of Jesus, these missionaries, and just tore them off. And then the politicians went further. Let's pass, let's get some laws going here. Let's get the power of government going against these two guys. That's what's happening in our country. 
The power of our government is being slowly turned against those who believe in God and believe in Jesus and who want to walk in righteousness and truth and faith and hope and love and goodness and meekness and self-control. All those, all those awful things that people want to do. And they have them be beaten with rods. And many of you, you've seen probably movies, the old Roman Empire, and they carry these little packages of rods around. And you may have thought, well, that was just a symbol, a symbol of authority. Well, actually, those things had some use. They would undo that little package of rods, and they would beat people with it. And so they were beaten with rods, and they beat them severely. They struck them with many blows. These people were out to destroy. And isn't that what the cancel culture does? You get caught in that cancel culture grinding machine. And they find something that they think that they can pick on. They're going to pick and pull that thread until they can get a hold of something that the mob will respond to. And you say, oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that doesn't work. They're not out to hear sorry, they're out to beat with rods until they get tired and move on to the next one. The cancel culture. It's here in America. It was in Philippi in the first century. Here's a picture, just maybe some of the kids that are here can sort of relate a little bit. There's Paul and Silas being beaten. I thought it was interesting though. I, I love artists when they really do a good picture, but they have What's wrong with this picture? Anybody notice what's wrong with this picture? What's in the hand of the Roman soldier? A rod or a whip? I just thought it was kind of interesting. Artists, you need to pay attention sometimes. But there's that picture of it. These guys are being beaten. And so then after they beat them, driven by emotion, the magistrates now falsely imprison them threw them into prison. They're commanding the jailer to guard them securely. I mean, these guys were bent out of shape. You're realizing the punishment does not fit the crime, does it? They're just mad. And they're just going to have rods flying. And then we're going to throw them into prison. We'll take care of these guys. How dare they? Now the narrative turns to the focus of the main character of our story. And they threw them into prison. And they commanded the jailer to guard them securely. And he, he, the jailer, sort of comes into the fore. Interesting, we never learn his name, by the way. You kind of wish you had, you might want to have a handle, but the Philippian jailer, that, that rolls off the tongue good enough. And he received such a command, threw them into the inner prison, and fasten their feet in the stocks. Now, some of you may not know, but a jailer back in those days, the way that the government assured that people didn't escape is they said this, okay, jailer, someone's going to show up to trial, and it's either you or the condemned person. One of you's showing up to trial, and one of you's showing up to get killed. So which do you want it to be, jailer? See? A jailer was 100% personally responsible for all the inmates in his prison. 
If anyone escaped, he would have to pay with his life. He would be accountable for their condemnation. And so imagine what kind of a person it took to be a jailer. Do you think Gwen would make a good jailer? So, I mean, to be a good jailer, you had to be pretty tough. You had to be, a, you, had to be a, you know, a pretty sturdy hombre. You were usually pretty hardened. Number one, you're dealing with people who are hardened all the time. And they're mocking you. I mean, they're a tough bunch, particularly if they're condemned. What do they care? They're going to die. And you have to become calloused to their fate. And so here's this Philippian jailer. Now, Lydia, I was going to spend some time on Lydia, but I thought, no, too much material would take too long and be a bit distracting. But remember, Lydia, the seller of purple, was the other person shown to be saved at Philippi. And her story, her testimony is going to be very different than the Philippian jailer. Lydia was a very gracious and refined lady who was a God-fearer when the gospel came to her. Whereas this Philippian jailer is a hardened, callous, tough man who's been dealing with the dregs of society for years. Two different people. But which one has the way cool testimony, by the way? So here he is, he throws them into prison, he throws them in the innermost prison. They, they say that this is that prison, by the way, at Philippi. <clears throat> it's actually a bigger complex than what you see here. This is just sort of the main complex. And this is the inside of the prison that you would probably call the inner prison. So if this is that place, Paul and Barnabas slept here. Okay? Paul and Barnabas were here in this very spot. Or I'm sorry, Silas. Well, about midnight, they've been thrown into their prison, and about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. We always love this part and secretly wonder whether that's what we would be doing if we were there. Their response is not dismay, it's not panic, it's not depression. But they're praying and singing hymns, they're full of faith, they're full of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure God is very near to them at this time. Sometimes it's kind of easy when God's with you to pretty much endure anything. But it still takes faith. Because the Lord's presence comes and then it goes and... All right, you better have faith on both sides of that as well as in the middle of it. And their witness permeates the prison. They're doing what is unheard of. I mean, these are usually hardened people thrown in here. They're not going to be singing anyway. Their whole life is nothing to sing about. Or they're singing bard songs. But here, Paul and Silas are praying and singing. And the rest of the prisoners are quiet. And they're listening. Something's going on. God is there. God is at work in all of this. What a setting. And suddenly, praying and singing, and suddenly, there's not just an earthquake. It's a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison house are shaken. Now, you saw that prison back there. What does it take to shake the foundations of that thing? 
That's a lot. That's an earthquake. Quinn and I woke up uh, when we were in New Jersey, surprisingly. Woke up one night and things are kind of rattling a little bit and realized we were in an earthquake. It was a little teeny one. But this was a great one, a big one, one that you hear about when something big happens in a place. Buildings fall, things like that. This is a great earthquake. Foundations of prison house were shaken. Then when someone could say, well, that's a coincidence. Well, immediately all the doors are open. Is that a coincidence? And everyone's chains were unfastened. Is that a coincidence? Does an earthquake unfasten chains and open all doors at once? Is that something that you hear about? So we have a picture here, not just of some providential thing happening, God shaking the ground. He's done that in a certain place. There were some people in Acts 4 together praying, and God was so pleased. He did what, you know, might have scared a few people. I don't know. I can just hear Gwen responding to it. He shook the building where they were in. You've been in a prayer meeting like that where God shakes the building? I'm hearing you. So God, at times, I think, loves to do that. We had pets, and every now and then we'd play some tricks on our pets because we loved them, but it was, it was fun. Anyway, they were never in danger, but <laughs> it was fun. Who knows if God doesn't have some fun sometimes with us. Doors opened. Chains unfastened. What's the picture? It's not an earthquake that brings destruction. It's an earthquake that brings what? Freedom. Release from bondage. What an image. When the grace of God comes and he starts shaking people's lives, shaking them to their very foundations because they need to be shaken. They need to get rid of that trust in self or trust in this world, trust in a humanistic world and start to realize that there's this big giant universe that could not possibly have come into being on its own or organized itself on its own. God created this universe, and God designed this universe. His fingerprints are stamped everywhere. They are stamped on every cell of your human body. DNA, your own unique DNA, that's the thumbprint of God himself. When God comes and shakes, and people start to lose their surface veneer of confidence and trust in themselves, they start to go, man, all my little subterfuges, all my little rationalizations of how the world works or who I am or how I fit in. All my hopes of a future that I cannot possibly control are meaningless in the face of an almighty God. The jailer awoke. So apparently he was sleeping in the prison that night because he had been given orders, what? Make sure these guys don't escape. He took it seriously because you needed to or you weren't going to be a jailer for long. And the jailer does what we all do. Did the jailer think the best or the, where did his mind go to? Okay, now he's being woken up by an earthquake, so we'll give him a little bit of a leeway here, all right? And he's thinking, oh no, what about the prisoners? They leave, I die. So there's some things at stake here, but he thinks the worst. The prison doors are open. It's the worst has happened. 
He's going to go by those, those cells and those doors, and all those cells will be empty. And so what does he do? He doesn't even bother to, to find out. He just draws his sword, and he's about to kill himself because he would rather be, kill himself than be killed in a torture chamber because when the Romans you know, would kill the jailer, they wouldn't just you know, cut his head off. They would make sure they made it worth their while. I don't understand a world that does that, but that was the Roman world. He supposed that the prisoners escaped, immediately went to the worst case scenario. But Paul somehow either sees or hears him because he's bringing a sword out that might have some kind of a distinctive sound to it, a little bit of a ring. And he cries out with a loud voice. Paul is like, no, don't do that. Stop. We're all here. So this jailer has been through an earthquake and he lived to tell about it. This jailer has looked in what looked were, to him were empty cells, which meant certain death. And he's lived to tell about it. And here's the narrative, and, and he calls for lights, and he rushes in, and he's trembling with fear. And he fell down before Paul and Silas. These pictures I've been putting up here, I've been noticing every time. I remember when uh, Matt who is, is an artist. I was talking with him when he was doing one of his uh, significant artworks to get uh, a degree, cross some finish line. And he'd come and explain to me why if you just have this dull picture, it's just, you know, it's just really bad. What you need to do is you need to have all the action, people doing things, people thinking things. You know, the, the portrait needs to be action everywhere. And that's what you see here. You see all the emotion, you see the action, you see the, the guy looking in with the light and there's Paul, probably the one talking to this jailer who's there pleading. And what an, what an amazing picture. Capturing the drama of that moment. If there was going to be a rating on this picture on TV, they would say PG-13, intense you know, interaction. Possible death. He falls down before them, and you, here's, this, here's this Roman jailer falling down before his prisoners. The, the, the tables have turned. Everything's flipped. And he brought them out, and he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He's trembling with fear. God has gotten into the inside of him, and he cannot walk away from it. Wherever he turns, there is the conviction of God. This deep conviction has gripped his soul. He's lost all of his internal composure. The earthquake itself was frightening enough. The outcome is perplexing. What's going on in my life? And God is at work breaking down his own self-confidence and self-will so that he will start to realize who he really is before the living God. And he brings them out. So this picture here, you know, doesn't capture that, actually the whole story. He brings them out. And he says again, sir, what must I do to be saved? Saved from what? He got saved from the earthquake. He got saved from a prison break. But he says, man, I need to be saved from something bigger than all that. 
I need to be saved from my sin before a just and a holy God. The conviction. He's now got his eyes focused on God. And that's what God does in people's lives. He comes and he grabs you and he shakes all the things off of you. All of your confidences, all of your reasonings, he shakes them all off until you realize I'm here in the hands of a holy God and there's nothing I can do about it but humble myself before him. That's all you can do because your life is 100%, whether you want to acknowledge it or not, it's 100% in the hands of the living God. And what was their answer? Well, let me get out this you know, Westminster Confession of Faith and give it to you. Let me tell you about, you know, give you an answer as to what happened in Genesis 6 with those angels and mixing with men. We'll figure that out with you. Believe in the Lord Jesus. What an answer. It's plain. It's simple. And it's compelling. Believe in the Lord Jesus. This is not something you do with liturgy. This is not something you do walking up to the front of a building. This is something you do with your heart. You embrace Jesus Christ from your heart. You believe in the Lord Jesus. That is the starting point for every sinner. I don't care how sophisticated or unsophisticated a sinner is. This is always the starting point. There is no other starting point. God himself has said, if you want to come to me, you must start with my son. The world says, oh, that's narrow-minded. I'm like, you need to talk to God about that because it's his universe and it's his son. And I'd be real careful how you start assessing this. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And as Christians in our personal witness, as a body of believers in our more public and corporate witness, this is our task. Get lost sinners pointed to Jesus. Get them going in the right direction. Everything else will come. Just simply point them to Jesus. This is not hard. It's not where you end, but it is where you start. Always. How can I turn this conversation to be about you and Jesus? And the result will be sure and it will be certain. You will be saved. You will be saved from your sin, from its power, from its consequences, from sin and death. And you will be saved unto righteousness before the living God who is purely holy. He's nothing but light. You'll be saved to righteousness and you will be saved unto eternal life because Jesus is willing and able to save. He will save anybody that comes to him in humility and repentance. And you have to embrace a whole person. You have to embrace not Jesus, but the Lord Jesus. 
He is both Lord and Savior. We do not come to half a Jesus. We do not come to a doctrine of justification. We come and we embrace a person who is right now at the right hand of God and has all authority in heaven and earth. He is Lord of all. And if you don't embrace that Jesus, then you have not embraced Jesus because you're embracing something else. The apostles right up front, the very first things they say is they point this man not simply to Jesus, but to the Lord Jesus. No two-tier salvation, no have Jesus as Savior here, and well, later you can have him as Lord if you want, optional. No, you either embrace Jesus for who he is and the totality of his person and his work and his offices, or you do not have Jesus, the Son of God. My brothers and sisters, Satan has always, always turned the church by little and little to preach a broad way and a wide gate. Do not accept that. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Submit your whole being to a whole Jesus. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. Someone might say, well, Steve, you're saying more than the passage says. I'm like, I don't think I am. But all you got to do is go anywhere in the book of Acts where something like this, they spoke the word of the Lord, where that's actually expanded on and you get the details and what will you find? Every place in the book of Acts. You believe on Jesus who is Lord in Christ. You repent of your sin and you follow him. That is always the content. You leave any of that out and you're in for a big surprise on the day of judgment. That is the gospel. We are saved by the gospel. We are not saved by cutting a few pieces out of it that sound good to fit our own lifestyle. They spoke the word of the Lord to him. They said way more to him. And remember, when did they start doing this? When was that earthquake? Midnight. How long did they spend with this jailer speaking the word of the Lord to him? They just didn't give him a few more sentences. They told him the whole counsel of God that they could fit into that small space, but still ours. And there's a lot you can say in ours. And then there's this promise to this wider audience, and it's really unique to this passage. It's to you and your household. It may be implied in the case of Lydia, but it's really only here that you kind of hear this language. There might be something similar, the promises to you and to your children and all that are far off. But that doesn't get as clear as this. You and your household. The promises to a wider audience. And so is the gospel presentation. Paul just didn't say the promises to you and all of your household will follow along with whatever you do. No, Paul spoke the word of the Lord to all of them. It's very plain. This passage goes out of its way to make it plain that Paul spoke to everybody, together with all who were in his house. Four times we're told this, by the way. Four times in as many verses. 
You see, it's not just the Philippian jailer that is told to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his household also has to believe. The requirements for salvation are the same for the jailer as they are for the household. If you are going to be saved, you must believe. It is the condition for salvation. We know of no other condition in the Bible that will bring you to heaven, ultimately. The jailer must believe to be saved, and his household must believe to be saved. That's just as clear as a bell in this passage. And the result is the same for all. The jailer, if he believes, will be saved, and the household, if they believe, will be saved. They won't become covenant children. They will be saved. This is not a passage about a household baptism. This is a passage about a household salvation. They were all saved because they all believed and they all heard the word. To try to read something else in this or to try to leave things out in order to promote a favorite doctrine is just wrong. Be honest before the Lord. God is light. He loves truth. I'm pretty sure Paul and Silas were talking while the jailer was washing and listening to them. He took them that very hour, the jailer, and he washed their wounds. And everybody was listening. And the content was, we saw in the previous verse, the word of the Lord. And immediately, this Philippian jailer said, I want to be baptized. All throughout the book of Acts, you never see a forced baptism. You always see voluntary baptism. Paul and Silas presented things, and it became clear to the jailer that he needs to be baptized. He presented the gospel to them, and baptism is a picture of it, and they said, I, he said, I need to be baptized. That was his response. In our day, it's customary to have people walk an aisle, make a profession, pray a sinner's prayer, and later on down the road, they're baptized. That's not how it worked in the book of Acts, and there's a reason it didn't do that in the book of Acts, because they explained the gospel to people in such a way is that they said, I want to be baptized, having some clear knowledge what that meant. They were going to respond to the gospel with a biblical response. Get baptized. And he was immediately baptized when he hears these things. Baptism encapsulates the gospel. That's why it's so important. It's why that is the response. It always conveys this reality of the remission of sins. It always represents the essence of salvation as union with Christ in his death and burial and resurrection. Baptism proclaims and represents the heart and soul of the gospel, and that is why that is to be your response. God calls you to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and your response is, amen, I'll get baptized. That's the only response held out in the scriptures. The things represented by baptism are core. They're foundational to the Christian life. And baptism is at the beginning. It's not in the middle. It's not at the end. It's at the beginning because these are the things of the very foundation of our confidence and our hope and our dynamic as Christians. We do not try to attain unto union with Christ. We start with union with Christ. This is where you begin. These things are the starting point, not the finish line. And they're not steps along the way. You repent from sin, you get forgiven, freely and fully forgiven for all your sin for all time. That happens at the beginning, not the end. And again we have, the third time, he and his household. 
They were hearing these things, and he and his household got baptized. The narrative presents this multiple times. It's the jailer and his household. They must fulfill the same condition, believe. They hear the same word being preached to them. They participate in the same baptism together. They share a common faith, a common hope, a common salvation, and a common baptism. I mean, this passage just bristles with this. We won't look at these terms, but just something you might consider. Many of you know this. Bap- baptism, to be baptized, baptize itself, is not a, it's a made-up word. They call it an ecclesiastical word, but it's a made-up word. How many of you go along and say, you know, I'm going to go up and take a baptism today? Meaning get in my bathtub. You see, the contrast between these two words, washed and baptized, I've highlighted them on the screen. Because those are two very different words. Washed means to be cleansed with water, whether you want to do it with a sprinkler, whether you want to do it with a hose, or whether you want to you know, jump in a sauna, whatever you want to do, it's washed with water. Cleansed with water. But the word baptized means one thing. It has never meant anything else in 400 years before Christ and 200 years after where we have the actual everyday use of this word in everyday language. It was not a made-up word. It was a word used all the time, every day. It means one thing alone, immerse. That's all it means. And this word baptized was just simply a made-up word to avoid confrontation. Honest translators would translate this and he was immersed in all his household. And he brought them into his house, and he said, booed before him, and he rejoiced greatly. This guy's been saved, not only from an earthquake, not only from a prison break, but he's been saved from sin, fully and finally and forever. That's something to be joyful about. Cultivate joy in the Lord. If you don't have it, ask God for it. Try to figure out why you don't have it. And he believed in God again with who? His whole house. His whole house. They all believed. And they were all saved. Now I debated about uh, this next little picture I'm going to put up here, but I just couldn't resist it. To me, it just like captured the Philippian jailer. I just love this picture. Here's this awesome guy. Now you You just look at him. He's just a guy that's at peace. A guy who's just been through an earthquake and a prison break. And he's like, man, God has it all covered in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for baptism. Such an amazing picture that it can encapsulate the very core of the gospel. And Lord, here are three little girls who are willing to go out and get baptized willing to confess before the world even as young as they are and with all the hesitancy and diffidence that they have. Lord, they're ready to say before a whole crowd of scary adults, I'm going to follow Jesus the rest of my life. Lord, thank you that you save sinners all over this world all the time and you've saved these three little girls. And just pray, Lord, if there's any here this morning, that they're thinking in their heart, gosh, I, I don't know these things. I just want to look at my watch. This, this message isn't gripping me because your grace has not gripped them. Your glory has not gripped them.
Lord, please, lay hold of their souls. Do what only you can do. Reveal yourself to them so that they will come to believe on Jesus from their hearts. And it's his name we pray. Amen.